0: Section twenty two of the Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two, Religion Part seven. Jerusalem was frequented at the time of the pilgrimage by thousands of Jews from the great cities of Europe, North Africa, and Asia Minor. These pilgrims were of a very different class from the fishermen of Galilee, they were Jews in religion but they were scarcely Jews in nationality. They were members of great and flourishing municipalities. They enjoyed political liberty and civil rights. They prayed in Greek and read the Bible in Greek translation. Their doctrine was tolerant and latitudinarian. At Alexandria there was a school of Jews who had mingled the metaphysics of Plato with their own theology. Many of these Greek Jews became converted and it is to them that Jesus owes his reputation, Christianity, its existence. The Palestine Jews desired to reserve the gospel to the Jews. They had no taste or sympathy for the Gentiles, from whom they lived entirely apart, and who were associated in their minds with the abominations of idolatry, the payment of taxes, and the persecution of Antiochus. But these same Gentiles, these poor, benighted Greeks and Romans were the compatriots and fellow-citizens of the Hellenic Jews, who therefore entertained more liberal ideas upon the subject. Two parties accordingly arose, the Conservative, or Jewish party, who would receive no converts except according to the custom of the Orthodox Jews in such cases, and the Greek party, who agitated for complete freedom from the law of Moses. The latter were headed by Paul. An enthusiastic and ambitious man who refused to place himself under the rule of the twelve apostles but claimed a special revelation. A conference was held at Jerusalem and a compromise was arranged to the effect that pagan converts should not be subjected to the rite of circumcision but that they should abstain from pork and oysters and should eat no animals which had not been killed by the knife. But the compromise did not last. The Church diverged in discipline and dogma more and more widely from its ancient form, till in the 2nd century the Christians of Judea, who had faithfully followed the customs and tenets of the Twelve Apostles, were informed that they were heretics. During that interval a new religion had arisen. Christianity had conquered Paganism, and Paganism had corrupted Christianity. The legend, which belonged to Osiris and Apollo, had been applied to the life of Jesus. The single deity of the Jews had been exchanged for the Trinity, which the Egyptians had invented, and which Plato had idealized into a philosophic system. The man who had said, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God, had now himself been made a god, or the third part of one. The Hebrew element, however, had not been entirely cast off. With some little inconsistency, the Jewish sacred books were said to be inspired, and nearly all the injunctions contained in them were disobeyed. It was heresy to deny that the Jews were the chosen people, and it was heresy to assert that the Jews would be saved. The Christian religion was at first spread by Jews who, either as missionaries or in the course of their ordinary avocations, made the circuit of the Mediterranean world. In all large towns there was a ghetto or Jews' quarter in which the traveller was received by the people of his own race. There was no regular clergy among the Jews, and it was their custom to allow, and even to invite, the strange to preach in their synagogue. Doctrines were not strictly defined, and they listened without anger and perhaps with some hope. To the statement that jesus of nazareth was the messiah and that he would shortly return to establish his kingdom upon earth but when these christians began to preach that the eating of pork was not a deadly sin and that god was better pleased with a sprinkle than a slash they were speedily stigmatized as heretics and all the jews in the world were closed against them those strange religious and commercial communities those landless colonies which an oriental people had established all over the world, from the Rhône and the Rhine to the Oxus and the Jaxartes, which corresponded regularly among themselves, and whose members recognised each other, wherever they might be, and in whatever garb, by the solemn phrase, Here, Israel, there is one God, afforded a model for the Christian churches of the early days. The primitive Christians did not indeed live together in one quarter like the Jews, but they gathered together for purposes of worship and administration in set places at appointed times. They did not establish commercial relations with the Christians in other towns, but they kept up an active social correspondence and hospitably entertained the foreign brother who brought letters of introduction as credentials of his creed. Travelling, though not always free from danger, was unobstructed in those days. Coasters sailed frequently from port to port, and the large towns were connected by paved roads with a posting-house at every six-mile stage. All innkeepers spoke Greek. It was not necessary to learn Latin even in order to reside at Rome. And now we return to that magnificent city which was adorned with the spoils of a hundred lands, into which streamed all the wealth the energy and the ambition of east and west. Ostia on the sea, where the ancient citizens had boiled their salt, was now a great port in which the grain from Egypt and Carthage was stored up in huge buildings, and to which in the summer and autumn came ships from all parts of the world. The road to Rome was fifteen miles in length, and was lined with villas and with lofty tombs. Outside the city on the neighbouring hills, were gardens open to the public, and from these hills were conducted streams by subterranean pipes into the town, where they were trained to run like rivulets, making everywhere a pleasant murmur, here and there reposing in artificial grottoes, or dancing as fountains in the air. The streets were narrow, and the tall houses buried them in deep shade. They were lined with statues. There was a population of marble men. Flowers glittered on roofs and balconies. Vast palaces of green and white and golden-tinted marble were surrounded by venerable trees. The Via Sacra was the regent street of Rome, and was bordered with stalls where the silks and spices of the east, the wool of Spain, the glasswares of Alexandria, the smoked fish of the Black Sea, the wines of the Greek Isles, Cretan apples, alpine cheese, the oysters of Britain, and the veined wood of the atlas were exposed for sale. In that splendid thoroughfare a hundred languages might be heard at once, and as many costumes were displayed as if the universe had been invited to a fancy dress-ball. Sometimes a squadron of the Imperial Guard would ride by, flaxen-haired, blue-eyed Germans covered with shining steel, then a procession of pale-faces, shaven Egyptian priests, bearing a statue of Isis, and singing melancholy hymns. A Greek philosopher would next pass along, with abstracted eyes and a ragged cloak, followed by a boy with a pile of books. Men from the East might be seen, with white turbans and flowing robes, or in sheepskin mantles with high black caps, and perhaps beside them a tattooed Briton gaping at the shops, then would come a palanquin, with curtains half-drawn, carried along at a swinging pace by sturdy Cappadocian slaves, and within it the fashionable lady, with supercilious, half-closed eyes, holding a crystal ball between her hands to keep them cool. Next a senator in white and purple robe, receiving, as he walked along, the greetings and kisses of his friends and clients, not always of the cleanest kind. So crowded were the streets, that carriages were not allowed to pass through them in the daytime. The only vehicles that appeared were the carts employed in the public works, and as they came rolling and grinding along, bearing huge beams and blocks of stone, the driver cracked his whip and pushed people against the wall, and there was much squeezing and confusion, during which pickpockets, elegantly dressed, their hands covered with rings, were busy at their work pretending to assist the ladies in the crowd. People from the country passed towards the market, their mules or asses laden with panniers in which purple grapes and golden fruits were piled up in profusion and refreshed the eye, which was dazzled by the stony glare. Hawkers went about, offering matches in exchange for broken glass, and the keepers of cookshops called out in cheerful tones, "'Smoking sausages! Sweet boiled peas!' Honey, wine, oh, honey, wine! And then there was the crowd itself, the bright-eyed, dark-browed Roman people, who played in the shade at dice or mora like the old Egyptians, who lounged through the temples, which were also the museums, to look at the curiosities, or who stood in groups reading the advertisements on the walls and the programs which announced that on such and such a day there would be a grand performance in the circus, and that all would be done in the best style. A blue awning, with white stars in imitation of the sky, would shade them from the sun. Trees would be transplanted, and a forest would appear upon the stage. Giraffes, zebras, elephants, lions, ostriches, stags, and wild boars would be hunted down and killed. Armies of gladiators would contend, and by way of after the arena would be filled with water and a naval battle would be performed, ships, soldiers, wounds, agony, and death being admirably real. So passed the Roman street-life day, and with the first hours of darkness the noise and the turmoil did not cease, for then the travelling carriages rattled towards the gates, and carts filled with dung, the only export of the city. The music of serenades rose softly in the air and sounds of laughter from the tavern. The night watch made their rounds, their armor rattling as they passed. Lights were extinguished. Householders put up their shutters, to which bells were fastened. For burglaries frequently occurred. And then, for a time, the city would be almost still. Dogs, hated by the Romans, prowled about, sniffing for their food. Men, or prey from the pontine marshes crept stealthily along the black side of the street signalling to one another with sharp whistles or hissing sounds sometimes torches would flash against the walls as a knot of young gallants reeled home from a debauch breaking the noses of the street statues on their way and at such an hour there were men and women who stole forth from their various houses and with mantles covering their faces hastened to a lonely spot in the suburbs and entered the mouth of a dark cave. They passed through long galleries, moist with damp and odorous of death, for coffins were ranged on either side in tiers, one above the other. But soon sweet music sounded from the depths of the abyss, an open chamber came to view, and a tomb, covered with flowers, laid out with a repast, encircled by men and women who were apparelled in white robes, and who sang a psalm of joy it was in the catacombs of rome where the dead had been buried in the ancient times that the christians met to discourse on the progress of the faith to recount the trials which they had suffered in their homes to confess to one another their sins and the doubts their carnal presumption or their lack of faith and also to relate their sweet visions of the night the answers to their earnest prayers they listened to the exhortations of their elders, and perhaps to a letter from one of the apostles. They then supped together, as Jesus had supped with his disciples, and kissed one another when the love-feast was concluded. At these meetings there was no distinction of rank. The high-born lady embraced the slave whom she had once scarcely regarded as a man. Humility and submission were the cardinal virtues of the early Christians. Slavery had not been forbidden by the apostles because it was the doctrine of Jesus that those who are lowest in this world would be highest in the next, his theory of heaven being earth turned upside down. Slavery therefore was esteemed a state of grace, and some Christians appear to have rejected the freeman's cap on religious grounds, for Paul exhorts such persons to become free if they can, advice which slaves do not usually require. As time passed on, the belief of the first Christians that the end of the world was near at hand became fainter and gradually died away. It was then declared that God had favoured the earth with a respite of one thousand years. In the meantime, the gospel, or good tidings, which the Christians announced, was this. There was one God, the creator of the world. He had long been angry with men because they were what he had made them. But he had sent his only begotten son into a corner of Syria, and because his son had been murdered, his wrath had been partly appeased. He would not torture to eternity all the souls that he had made. He would spare at least one in every million that were born. Peace unto earth, and goodwill unto men, if they would act in a certain manner. If not, fire and brimstone, and the noisome pit. He was the emperor of heaven, the tyrant of the skies. The pagan gods were rebels with whom he was at war, although he was all-powerful, and whom he allowed to seduce the souls of men, although he was all-merciful. Those who joined the army of the cross might entertain some hopes of being saved. Those who followed the faith of their fathers would follow their fathers to hell-fire. This creed with the early Christians was not a matter of half-belief and metaphysical debate as it is at the present day. When Catholics and Protestants discuss hell-fire with courtesy and comfort over filberts and port wine. To those credulous and imaginative minds, God was a live king, hell a place in which real bodies were burned with real flames, which was filled with a sickening stench of roasted flesh, which resounded with agonizing shrieks. They saw their fathers and mothers, their sisters and their dearest friends hurrying onward to that fearful pit unconscious of danger, laughing and singing, lured on by the fiends whom they called the gods. They felt as we should feel were we to see a blind man walking towards a river bank, who would have the heart to turn aside and say it was the business of the police to interfere. But what was death, a mere momentary pain, compared with tortures that would have no end? Who that could hope to save a soul by tears and supplications would remain quiescent, as men do now shrugging their shoulders and saying that it is not good taste to argue on religion and that conversion is the office of the clergy the christians of that period felt more and did more than those of the present day not because they were better men but because they believed more and they believed more because they knew less doubt is the offspring of knowledge the savage never doubts at all in that age the Christians believed much, and their lives were rendered beautiful by sympathy and love. The dark, deep river did not exist, it was only a fancy of the brain. Yet the impulse was not less real the heart throb, the imploring cry, the swift leap, the trembling hand outreached to save, the transport of delight, the ecstasy of tears, the sweet, calm joy that a man had been wrested from the jaws of death. Are these less beautiful, are these less real, because it afterwards appeared that the man had been in no danger, after all? In that age, every Christian was a missionary. The soldiers sought to win recruits for the heavenly host. The prisoner of war discoursed to his Persian jailer. The slave girl whispered the gospel in the ears of her mistress as she built up the mass of towered hair. There stood men in cloak and beard at street-corners, who, when the people, according to the manners of the day, invited them to speak, preached not the doctrines of the painted porch, but the words of a new and strange philosophy. The young wife threw her arms round her husband's neck, and made him agree to be baptized, that their souls might not be parted after death. How awful were the threats of the heavenly despot! How sweet! Were the promises of a life beyond the grave. The man who strove to obey the law which was written on his heart, yet often fell for want of support, was now promised a rich reward if he would persevere. The disconsolate woman, whose age of beauty and triumph had passed away, was taught that if she became a Christian, her body, in all the splendour of its youth, would rise again. The poor slave, who sickened from weariness of a life, in which there was, for him, no hope, received the assurance of another life, in which he would find luxury and pleasure, when death released him from his woe. Ah, sweet fallacious hopes of a barbarous and poetic age! Illusion still cherished, for mankind is yet in its romantic youth. How easy it would be to endure, without repining, the toils and troubles of this miserable life, if indeed we could believe, that when its brief period was past, we should be united to those whom we have loved, to those whom death has snatched away, or whom fate has parted from us by barriers cold and deep, and hopeless as the grave. If we could believe this, the shortness of life would comfort us, how quickly the time flies by, and we should welcome death. But we do not believe it, and so we cling to our tortured lives dreading the dark nothingness, dreading the dispersal of our elements into cold, unconscious space. As drops in the ocean of water, as atoms in the ocean of air, as sparks in the ocean of fire within the earth, our minds do their appointed work and serve to build up the strength and beauty of the one great human mind which grows from century to century and from age to age, and is perhaps itself a mere molecule within some higher mind end of section 22